Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. We strive to be happy, but we have these darn negative emotions in our lives. Some of us try to run from them via food, alcohol, drugs, sex, work, or even exercise. Does that sound familiar? But have you ever thought your feelings were a messenger here to tell you something important? Carla McLaren is an award-winning author, researcher, and pioneering educator whose empathic approach to emotions revalues even the most negative emotions and opens startling new pathways into the depths of the soul. She is the author of The Art of Empathy, A Complete Guides to Life's Most Essential Skill, and also the language of emotions, what your feelings are trying to tell you. Carla's taught at such venues as the University of San Francisco, one of my alma maters, and the Omega Institute. Carla's here to discuss what your feelings are trying to tell you. Carla, hello and welcome. Hi, thanks so much, Corinne. So why do we need to listen to our emotions? Why is it so important? (laughs) Because if you try not to... You're going down eventually. (laughs) I look at emotions uh, as basically central to our cognition, central to most of the actions we take and most of the thoughts we have and most of the ideas. And um, I see emotions as the motivating force behind what we do. And I think a lot of people would rather that not be true. They would rather that they could be what's called rational and then emotions wouldn't be a part of their life. And, and I also, and I always say to them, well, you try that and get back to me and see how that works (laughs) because emotions are really, um, they're crucial to everything we do and, um, all of the ways that we are in the world are, um, are based on our emotional, um, uh, responses to what's going on around us. Have we been taught, Carla, to not feel our emotions and just to buck up and get keep moving forward? Oh, yeah. I, I would say most of the emotional education that we get is to not have them and to ignore them and to treat them as problematic and lesser than. They're lesser than everything, pretty mm-hmm. much. Um, they live They live in the shadow of of pretty much all modern life and and you're right when we're told about emotions we're told um how not to have them don't get angry with me young man um oh there's no reason to be afraid god don't be a coward um stop crying i'll give you something to cry about do you know what i mean mm-hmm. there, there's so few emotions where people say hey there's an emotion and you should be having it and here's how to have it rather we're we're pretty much trained to be emotionally illiterate. So my mom, who I do love and, you know, one of the best for me. Um, but I remember when I was a little kid, she told me, don't cry. 
you can save that for my funeral. Right. And so that was one of my little messages to learn how to buck up. And then when I was at the college and I was teaching and I was coaching in a very male dominated field, one of the things that the men in the department would like to do, whether it was the AD or my dean, would say, oh, women, they're just so emotional. Right. Yeah. And so those are the messages. So like in my world, I grew up thinking emotions are a bad thing. I'm, I'm not oh, yeah. in control. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and the funny thing is that we, because we've we've pushed emotions uh, into the shadow and we've swept them under the rug, and we push them behind the door, you know, so that nobody can see them. We end up growing up with almost no emotional skills. Like, why would you why would you develop a skill in something that is shameful, you know, and that nobody wants to see and nobody wants to talk about? So basically. And I'm not saying, uh, let me say before I say this, I'm not saying that psychotherapy is a problem, but what I am saying is that it's a problem that when we have any kind of emotional difficulty, we have to go to professionals to deal with it. So we, we, we strip people of their capacity to understand emotions, and then when an emotion comes up, which they always do because that's their job, um, then people actually have to go, if they can afford to, to go to a psychotherapist or a counselor or go talk to a friend if they have somebody who can talk to them about emotions. So we end up creating a pretty harsh world for people if, as I'm saying, emotions are at the, are at the center of all motivation and action. So we end up teaching people to be pretty, um, um, pretty chaotic and uh, unskilled around their emotions. And it's not necessary. Emotions are really fun and really lovely to talk to. And they, if you work with them, they'll become your best friend and your favorite comedian. And um, they're just wonderful, emotions are. It's, to me, it's fascinating how, um, how much they've been shoved into the shadow. Well, isn't that one of the reasons why we have the you know, the obesity, the drug and alcohol problems, the problems with sex, the problems, you know, people overworking because they are trying to find a way to escape because they don't know how to deal with these emotions. Yeah, I, I would say whenever I see people doing something that is um, obsessive or addictive or self-injuring, um, uh, I always look for the emotion that triggered it. And I don't mean the emotion triggers it because emotions are bad. What I mean is they're feeling a normal human emotion. They don't know how to feel it. They don't have any practice for it. You know, they don't have any comfort with it. And so they just like, I got to get away from this. And we can do this in a number of ways. We can ignore it. We can laugh. We can pretend. We can go to entertainment. That's a huge thing. Um, TV and movies and the Internet. Or we can go to substances um, or... or uh, you know, the sex addictions, that sort of thing. But, but what I always ask people is, okay, what, what emotion got you to start eating too much chocolate pudding? Right, where, let's go back before the pudding happened and see what's happening. You know, and it's usually some very important emotions telling very true stories about things that have actually occurred. But it's too painful. Right. And, mm -hmm. and people don't know what to do with the emotions. So they just go and just try to, you know, have something sweet and lovely and nice and fun and exciting to get away from it. 
So say more about this media consumption that we're doing these days. Oh, well, do you have do you have a media consumption issue? Because I do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I definitely like my Netflix, but... <laughs> oh, Netflix and Hulu. There's a new thing out which has come up in the last two years. It's um, binge watching. Mm-hmm. You know, that where you can get the whole series, you know, or five seasons of a show that maybe you never watched or you watched... And you can just watch the whole thing all the way through and you can see the story arc. And there's, you know, there's comedy about binge watching where, you know, people aren't, people aren't eating, they're not washing themselves, they're not, they're not sleeping. <laughs> but there's a lot of that now where we go to stories to get out of our own story. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting to me, though, is stories are a major way that we tell each other how to work with emotions. It's a secret way. It's it's not something where you'd say, well, if you want to learn how to deal with emotions, what you need to do is look at fiction. Um, rather, people have sort of landed on it um, by accident. So when we go through the stories of others and watch them deal with their emotions and the tragedies and vampires and, you know, whatever's going on, and we see them either making good choices or poor choices or enduring or falling apart, that is training for our emotions. So I would say that that of all the addictions, probably fiction watching or or obsessive reading would probably be ones that would actually give you some hope of getting emotional skills underneath you. So it's good. It's just important to eat and sleep. <laughs> like Battlestar Galactica, I have to go. <laughs> Um, no, I, I do. I do like that. We're being able to sit down and watch a series for a period of time. And it's been an interesting process going through this because a person who, you know, I was told to buck up and just work really hard and become an overachiever and not rest, um, yeah. learning how to, to rest. And, and I don't like the word balance, but, you know, checking in with my body and going, okay, am I, am I full? You know, is there anything else I can do? What do I need to do right now? And sometimes it is fun to just go watch some TV. And then um, I just recently had an experience with the show House of Cards. Mm -hmm. And I've decided that I don't want to live a House of Cards life. I want to live a life like West Wing. And... um, I want things that are aspirational. I want for the better good. Right. And, and so, but those have been great ways. And that seems to what you're talking about of we can use that as a way to think about what are our values or what, you know, what feels really good. Cause I kept noticing I would feel really tight when I was watching house of cards. I felt, you know, and I'd have a hard time sleeping. So I couldn't watch it before I went to bed and being, I'm more aware of that where 10 years ago, I would have just bucked on through and not noticed any of that. Yeah, it's important to know, to understand what is the emotional content of your fiction that you're reading or viewing. It's how does it make you feel and what is it telling you? I, I looked at House of Cards, but it felt to me like a dystopia, which is, you know, a utopia is a, is a beautiful world where everything works, and a dystopia is a horrible world mm-hmm. where there's, like, nobody that you can like. Um, and... Uh, you know, the the heroes get killed regularly. You know, mm-hmm. I couldn't at that time deal with a dystopia. And I went, mm, no, I don't think so. Because I'm dealing with a lot of really, really rough issues in my own life. And I need some utopias <laughs> or at least funny places to be. 
Well, you know, yeah. I, pre- I appreciate you sharing that because so often people say, oh, well, you know, Carla has, you know, she's an award-winning author. She's researched this stuff. She's written a couple of books. So her life must be peachy keen. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. <laughs> people also think I'm wealthy. And I'm like, have you met a writer? <laughs> There's no wealthy writers. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think one of the reasons that I was able to write these books about emotions is because I feel them um, deeply. There wasn't really an, an option for me with the extent to which I felt emotions and with the extent to which I was um, hyper-empathic. There wasn't an option that I could truly repress emotions and get away with it. So for me, studying the emotions in the way that I did was a way to survive. It was a way to... Um, try to make sense of a world that to me was was just incomprehensible. And so these books are, are, are the way that I saved my life. But I still live in the same world where I'm highly empathic and highly emotionally aware, in a world where people are actually, you know, uh, physically stopped from being emotionally aware and physically stopped from being empathic. So this is a pretty painful place to live for me and my books are a way to sort of call out to other people like me and to maybe leave breadcrumbs on the path that I've gone on so that they can pick them up <laughs> and find them um, and and feel welcome in this kind of strange strange human world well, well just so you know Carla when I was you know um, you, before I invited you to be a guest on my show your book became came highly recommended as um, one of the things that's helped so many people. I mean, it was like countless. It, it just came, it kept coming in and kept coming into me. So, and that was the reason that, that I extended the invitation out to you because your work had helped so many people. And I thought, wow, if, if, if I can get you in front of my listeners, and as you talked about, right, there can be this barrier that you have to go work with a professional and mm-hmm. in, in, and if that can't be the case for people, if they can hear this interview, this podcast, and it can ignite something, they can go read your book, and it can go ignite something and say, okay, and here's this woman, Carla, who has written these books, and and she still has stuff, but she's working through it. And that, I think, provides hope for others, and that's my intention with the show. Yeah, thank you so much. And I, I'm realizing what this just came up for me while you were speaking is one of the things that we do with emotions is we, um, we gender them, Mm -hmm. meaning, uh, women, uh, for instance, women who feel and express the normal human emotion of anger. We have a name for women who express anger (laughs) and it, it rhymes with witch and men who express the normal human emotions of sadness and grief. We have a name for them too. And it's not a nice name. Mm -hmm. or or other things like that. It's just, it's just amazing how emotionally um, illiterate we are and what problems that creates for everybody. Um, it's, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge issue. And the things that I'm writing, they don't come from the world of psychology. I do utilize psychological research in some of my work, but I find that most of psychology is kind of a mirror of the incredibly poor emotional uh, training that we've all had. And most of psychology would, for instance, say that there's such thing as a positive emotion or a negative emotion. And I have to say, no, no. 
emotions are, if we can look at them as organs in our body, we're not going to say, well, your elbow is wonderful, <laughs> but the left side of your thigh is devastating and we don't want to think about it. You know, it's like if we were to look at our bodies in that way, well, we do a little bit with our genitals, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. It's like, ew, genitals, no, ew. But, um, <laughs> but, but basically we say, well, we like happiness and joy and friendliness and contentment, but everything else is crap. Mm-hmm. And since everything else is pretty much the, the bulk of emotions, we're actually with the positive and negative um, ideology uh, helping people to become even less skilled with emotions than, than, than is even imaginable. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's, um, it's a big, it's a big um, problem, and I'm really glad that I found the publisher that I did who saw my work as, as original, um, because other publishers would say, well, where are your bona fides? Where's your degree in psychology? And I said, no, I couldn't have done this in psychology. This is, this is a, an answer to psychology, and I needed to be in my own, my own world and my own understanding of emotions to do it. Um, and I was lucky to find Sounds True. I was, I was lucky to find them. And, um, and to be able to have a voice in this way. This is awesome. Woohoo! <laughs> when you say that um, you couldn't have found this in, when, if you had a degree in psychology, are you referring to like when artists go to art schools and they're told that it has to be this way and they kind of get mm-hmm. that, that their, their own essence, their own, you know, their, their own essence of their work? kind of washes away because they're trying to fit into, even though it's art, this artistic system of somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. But, but even, even more than that, I would think that the place that you would go to study emotions would be psychology, right? Mm -hmm. You would, there would be a class called emotions and then you would go to that and you would understand them. There actually isn't that class. And what's bizarre is that my book, Language of Emotions, is used as a textbook at University of San Francisco in the counseling program and at Naropa in the counseling program because it's the only book that has ever been written that includes all of the emotions Mm -hmm. in terms of how to work with them. And I went, what? I mean, this, what? (laughs) (laughs) What? it's like it's like saying that you would go to to a medical school and there wouldn't be a book that contained all the parts of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I think for me, looking at at psychology and especially right now, there's a there's a big movement toward called positive psychology, mm-hmm. and I just look at it and say, well, that's a problem right there. That's a problem. Um, but those are the options that we have in psychology. Psychology is very much a, a, a function of the way that the way that we've set up our understanding of emotions. So for me, a psychology degree would have been sort of like going into the badlands. Not that psychology is bad. There's many parts of it that are good, but in terms of understanding of emotion, it's very backward. So now my listeners are thinking this because you said something and we want to know the answer. Why is positive psychology a bad thing? Bad, no. Problematic, yes. Okay, problematic. Thank you. Yeah, um, because with positive psychology, there's still that bias that there is such a thing as positive emotions and negative emotions. 
Now, I'm not saying let's let's all go out and be enraged and um, and feel tremendous amounts of shame and let's go cry. <laughs> but, uh, but the idea that you want to focus on positive emotions only and on feeling positive and up tempo, that's great. We all love to feel up tempo and and happy and pleased with ourselves. It's awesome. But there are many situations in which those that's not the way to feel. You know, if, if, if so, I always look at emotions in terms of their appropriateness. And I understand emotions empathically, which means I've moved into the emotions and asked them, what are you? What are you doing? Why are you here? What is your purpose? And then I found the, the, um, the, the point for each emotion, what it's doing. So, for instance, anger comes forward when your sense of self or your voice has been challenged. And its job is to help you reset a boundary. Now, some people use anger very badly, and they reset a boundary by destroying the boundaries of others. I would say, nah, it's not very good. Um, Or some people can't do anger at all, and they refuse to set a boundary, and then they will be abused. But if someone comes up and, and challenges your sense of self and tries to take away your self-esteem in a social situation, the proper emotional response to that is anger in some way. And I talk about working with anger and having a practice for anger because you need to be mindful when anger comes up because otherwise you can hurt yourself or others. There is a middle path. There is a way to work with anger that is honorable. But but in, in the idea that you want to feel positive all the time, if you try to throw positive emotions on that when someone has actually come and wounded you and say, hey, happy, happy, joy, joy, or whatever emotion it is. Those emotions are inappropriate at that time. Happiness and joy and contentment each have their own job. They're very specific emotions, and they have work to do that's extremely important. But they cannot be, they cannot be um, um, just thrown into a situation where anger is the necessary emotion. The same with sadness, shame. Uh, jealousy, envy, grief, uh, anxiety, fear, um, all of these emotions have a specific purpose. And understanding that helps people befriend their emotions so that they don't have that that simple-minded, good, bad um, um, kind of valence that they put over the emotions. One of the problems with thinking about emotions as negative is that when you have them, you begin to uh, react to them because you've heard that they're negative. Right? So you can't just have your emotion. You then react to your emotion. Then you throw maybe shame on top of that and then fear. And then there's this emotional, you know, um, um, pile up and, and you can't get out of it. You just begin to spin out. And I think if you can say, I'm having anger and anger is about boundaries rather than I'm having anger and I'm a bad girl. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm having anger and I shouldn't. I'm having anger and anger's. Uh, wrong. I'm having anger and this means I'm a bit. Do you know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. That doesn't help. Anger comes to help set boundaries. So I can say, I, I'm having anger. Where has my boundary been been stepped across? And then I look at it and say, okay, here's what happened for me and I'm feeling uncomfortable and let's talk about this. And that is me dealing with my anger. It's not, I hate you and I'm going to kill you and, <laughs> and, and your mama. You know, it's none of that. It's understanding what the emotion is for and then working with it rather than always kind of chasing after the so-called positive emotions. The poor positive emotions, I mean, there's like, they're like, oh, please, don't, don't come to me again. 
can you please use some sadness here because I really I have nothing to do with the situation. Um, I think I think looking at emotions as positive is is sort of a, a cruelty to the positive to the so-called positive emotions because it 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 takes away the their own nature. It takes away the importance of those emotions and the specific things that they can do, and it tries to sort of make them do everything. And that's very problematic. Yeah. And, and I mean, who it is very problematic. And I think about, there's two things that I'm thinking of as you're speaking is one is you and I both live in Northern California and, um, you know, our weather isn't as extreme as other parts of the country, but we are celebrating that there's rain today, right? It's, <laughs> it's very much needed as other parts of the country are in snowstorms and flooding. But, yeah. um, but, it's nice to have a weather shift and um, you know, where I do look forward to the summers when I can be walking around in flip flops and shorts all day. But then sometimes if you get, we get lucky and get a rainy day in the summer, it's a nice break from mm-hmm. that very pleasant weather. Right. Yeah. Uh, in January, I don't know if it was the same for you, mm-hmm. but there was no rain in January and we were calling it January. Yes. And uh, there was sun every day and all of the trees, in our neighborhood, we're thinking that it was spring, and I was like, oh, no, yes. dude, no, <laughs> because there's going to be rain and a freeze, and these trees are going to lose their blossoms. Do you know what I mean? Yes. That that it was lovely to have that weather, but it was inappropriate. <laughs> yes, it was It was it very confusing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very confusing for nature. I'm like, dude, dude, don't, don't. It's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> So, the, and I think I think that's an, you know when I when I work with people, for instance, people will come to me and they'll say, "I've been crying about this situation and I can't stop crying," and I'll say, "Okay, so we've got a lot of sadness coming up. Sadness's job is to help you let go of something that isn't working anyway." And so I'll look at them and I'll say, "Well, wait a minute. It's you keep crying, so you keep you keep doing the action that sadness requires. You keep crying, you keep letting go, and sadness keeps coming up." I don't think you have a sadness problem, right? I'll, I'll look and see this sadness is working really, really hard and nothing's happening. And I'll say, okay, let's, could this be a grief situation? Tell me what's going on. And in a lot of, a lot of instances, because people don't have emotional skills because they were never taught to have them, they will use sadness. For instance, one person I'm thinking of is she was having crying after her husband had gone out and had an affair. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, the, hmm. so the difference between sadness and grief is that sadness helps you let go of something that isn't working anyway. Grief helps you when something has died and you don't have a choice anymore. And I said, you know, sweetie, even though your husband's still alive and you're still alive, that marriage that you knew has died. This is a grief situation. Sadness can't, you know, sadness can help you a little bit, but this isn't something that you had a choice about letting go of. This is a death. And then, you know, then she was able to drop down into what was really going on. And the crying stopped, right? And then she could look at, okay, I said, you know, so we need to, we need to mourn the death of this relationship and then see if you want to go forward with this marriage, which will be an entirely new marriage, an entirely new situation. Do you hear what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That, that that each emotion has its place. So if people are having an emotion that just keeps 
cycling and cycling. I don't say, okay, you're emotionally disabled or you're emotionally disturbed. I look at what the emotion is trying to do and say, could you, could this be an emotion that can't handle this? You know, in the way that, that joy and happiness and contentment can't handle every single situation in a person's life. Emotions can sometimes get into problems because people don't know how to do grief or they don't know how to do anger. Because whoever taught us mm-hmm. how to do So how do we learn, Carla? How do we learn? <clears throat> Why, I have a book. <laughs> um, in the language of emotions, I actually, in the second half of the book, each emotion gets its own chapter. And I talk about the, a practice for the emotion, how to understand what the emotion is doing and why, and how to understand how to work with it in a way that is both honorable to the emotion and honorable to yourself and others. You know, in the way I talked about anger, if anger comes up and I don't know about honor and, and respect for others, I'll just slam you. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll be like, Karen, you suck. <laughs> You know, that, that will be how I set a boundary with you. Mm-hmm. And, and, sir, that's one way to do it. I mean, if I set a boundary with you in that way, you know not to do that again. But you might also kind of be upset with me and a little bit scared of me because I kind of suck. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? <laughs> but, but that each emotion has a way that you can work with it that is honorable to everybody. Um, for instance, jealousy and envy, those are two almost um, universally despised emotions. Mm-hmm. People hate those emotions with a white-hot passion. But they have extremely important jobs to do in the psyche. Jealousy and envy are what I call the sociological emotions. They help you understand where you stand in relation to your social world. They're both very social emotions. And... Um, Jealousy and envy, they're, they're similar to each other, but they have different things that they do. Um, with jealousy, this emotion helps you um, identify how things are going with um, uh, love, loyalty, connection, that kind of um, uh, relational radar. And with envy... What you're looking at is how things are going with the interactions in your life. Are you being honored and supported in terms of um, um, being, uh, are are people being loyal to you? Are you being given things that in a fair way or is somebody else perhaps getting more than you or less than you? these emotions are extremely important, but in the same way that we're told that we cannot have anger um, or that, we, that the way to do anger is to just blast people and destroy them, um, you'll notice when children are developing their jealousy and envy, they're usually shamed out of it. So if a child says, hey, she got more cake than I did, you know, the, the child will be shushed. Um, Shh, you need to share. You know, that sort of thing. So children don't really develop very strong skills around their jealousy and envy. And if you let them, 
have those emotions, children will develop a lovely sense of fairness and, and loyalty to the social group. But if you don't let them have it, children will often become kind of selfish and self-centered because their jealousy and envy haven't been allowed to mature. So, so, so a lot of times, go with, ahead. With that example, what would be mm-hmm. a way that we could help cultivate that in that specific mm-hmm. example that you just shared? Yeah, I mean, I would stop and say, well, hold on. Let's look. Did she get more, more cake than you? Right? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's look and see if that's true. And, and, and then why do you think that happened? And, and do you want to have the exact amount of cake that she, she does? Would that feel better to you? And then get the other child involved. Well, what, what are your thoughts on this? Do you know what I mean? Instead of just shushing it, is what would feel right? And you'll find that the children will usually work something out, and they'll usually talk about what is important to them. And, you know, the child might say, well, no, I don't really want more cake. I just wanted to point out that she got more than me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> because it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's true. This is, this is what actually happened. And a lot of times when children will bring things up that their emotions help them identify, will shush them, um, and what children will hear is, what I see is true is not important. What I experience is not important. The way that I see the world is not important. And, I mean, this, this, sets, this sets kids up for a lifetime, you know, of not speaking the truth. And um, uh, it's just, um, it's amazing to, when children are, are expressing emotions that are generally, um, that are generally silenced to just sit with them and ask them what's going on. And you'll find this incredible social intelligence in children, even little ones, you know, two and three. Incredible social intelligence, which comes from jealousy and envy. But because we hate these emotions so much, people tend to grow up with their social intelligence kind of undergrounded. So with that specific example, um, is that a form of trauma that can be experienced from a kid because they're being told that their voice doesn't matter, what they have to say doesn't matter. And then is that, is that a form of trauma? I, I would think so. Okay. And, it's, and it's emotional trauma. The reason I say that is that in your book, you talk a lot about trauma and some people may say, Oh, well this didn't happen to me. Right. When we think of trauma, we think of some of those, some other issues. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But this is where those, that one small instance, of what we say or how we interact when we think I don't have time, right? <laughs> Just yeah. be, be, be thankful and how it can be shaming and how it can create this ripple effect in somebody's life. Yes. I used to work um, with people who had survived dissociative trauma. So they had, they had, you know, left their bodies in response to overwhelming uh, situations. And, in some of the classes I taught, people would start having like a trauma Olympics and they would say, you know, well, I, you know, my grandfather took my liver out with a fork you know, or something like that. You know, it got really ridiculous. And I said, hey, hold on. This isn't a game you want to win. You know, who had it worse? This is not a game you want to win. You're not going to get any, any more prizes for this. Um, what I also noticed is that some highly sensitive people could get traumatized by just being told that their jealousy and envy wasn't, wasn't welcome. 
they would dissociate for that. And I wouldn't say, well, you're, you're kind of a lightweight. You know, rather I would say, however you experience this is how it was for you, right? Um, some of us, you know, can be beaten within an inch of our lives and we refuse to dissociate because, you know what, screw you. Whereas other people will feel traumatized and dissociate, you know, if, if their sister continually gets more cake than they do. <laughs> right? they'll, just like, they'll be sort of like, I don't want to live in this world. Forget it. It's, it's not, it's, this is not a good place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think everyone has a right to the level of sensitivity that they do have. Um, and one of the things I see online, I don't know if you're online a lot, is people will have, um, will have trauma Olympics. <laughs> and someone will come and say, well, I'm very sensitive about this. And then another, you know, then there will be a comment war or a flame war, a thread war, where people will say, I, you know, my grandfather took my liver out with a fork and I didn't, you know, I'm just like, you know what, this is, this is a really dumb game. This Mm -hmm. game goes nowhere. If people say that they're hurt, they're hurt. Then you just focus on that. Well, in going to your comment about when you can ask yourself, you know, what are you doing and why are you here asking the, the emotions this i had this experience recently we have some stuff happening in our community and i got really angry about it i was really upset and um and i wanted to react and i sat there and i processed and i said well why am i so invested in this i have no dog in this fight right <laughs> and and i just kept and it was kind of a fascinating thing that occurred over about four or five days you know as i would talk with people and i would write i do some writing and i talk with people and I'd do some writing, and i could let it percolate i could figure i figured out what was so what i was so concerned about and with anger when my anger was um and, and i got really clear and then once i got clear um it was it was a great example for me and a lesson for me about how do I want to be and how do I want to live, right? So I got to learn something and about, you know, what my expectations are um, from leaders and community members and, um, and and the fact that I wanted to have a dialogue, you know, and I wanted us to be able to talk about it and what do people have different, you know, voices to it. So actually for me, it was a really good process, but had I not gone through and been in touch with my, you know, my emotions and been more like 10 years ago, I've been very reactive you know, and mm-hmm. very blasphemous. And this time it was a great process for me to go through. So um, that, you know, that's an example I think of, we have these so-called, I know you don't want to call them negative emotions, but we have that, that's what they're perceived as. But I think that there are great teachers and that sounds like what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, we can call them intense emotions or socially mm-hmm. unacceptable emotions. That's certainly true, mm-hmm. <laughs> that they're socially unacceptable. But I think it's interesting you were talking about uh, finding your voice mm-hmm. through all this anger. And that's one of the things that anger does. It helps you reset your sense of self, your standpoint, and your voice. Um, to tell your story, tell your truth the way that it is for you. But not in a way where you where you pull everybody else's stories. You know, you suck the oxygen out of the room and nobody else gets to have their own truth. Mm-hmm. With an anger that's what I call channeled um, mindfully then everybody knows who you are and what your needs are, but they don't feel that they don't have a right to exist. Mm-hmm. You know, I think what, what I've noticed is that people who are very good with anger in the way that I'm talking about, <clears throat> no one would call them angry. No one would identify that as anger. 
the same thing with most of the other emotions. When people are very good with the emotions and are working with it gracefully in a dance, listening to it, um, speaking to it, uh, making decisions based on it, almost no one would be able to identify that emotion as the one that is helping the person uh, because we are, have been taught that emotions are odious and not to be trusted. And so it's just amazing to me how, how, how much of our emotional awareness has moved out of the understanding of what emotions do. So if someone was really good at anger, we would say that they were forthright, they were respectful, they were well-spoken, um, they were um, uh, uh, well-grounded, they had good boundaries, right? None of that says anger, but to me, all of it does. And so for somebody out there that's listening going, oh, I'm really angry, right? Or I really have a lot of jealousy. I get on social media and I see how everybody's having this perfect life and I am not and I don't like these people. They, they can't. <laughs> well, who would, really? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, they, they can, like as, as you said in your book and, and the show, is they can practice and they can ask themselves questions. What is it that this is trying to tell me? What is it that I need? to get to kind of what is going on underneath. Just like for me, there was anger. That was my initial. But because, mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't going to lash out because I was trying to be socially responsible um, and uh, in my community that I was able to work on processing what was going on at a deeper level for me. And it was, a, it mm -hmm. was really like I look at it now and go, wow, through all this kind of chaos that's been going on, it's been a, a great opportunity for my own personal growth. Right. Mm -hmm. And and it's hard, though, especially with a, a, an emotion that's as powerful as anger. You know, you get all that intensity and sort of the question that most people have for anger is, you know, what weapon should I pick up? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, let me just go. And you will set a boundary in that way. But it's going to be a boundary that's pretty rigid and with spikes on the ends of it and and frightening for other people. But, Yeah. One of the things that you say in your book is defining your boundaries strongly and grounding and focusing yourself inside your sacred space. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like that's what I did when I went mm -hmm. through this process recently was that, you know, I got clear about kind of my boundaries about my social responsibility and not to just lash out just because I thought the whole thing was ridiculous, right? And yeah. um, kept really asking myself what was bothering me about the current situation. And there was other mm -hmm. stuff because then at one point shame crept in too, right? Yeah. And, um, but like really what was bothering me and focusing inside instead of, you know, turning it out to other people. And is that what you're talking about with mm -hmm. those, with that sentence that I'd read? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, another thing to understand about anger is that you cannot get angry at things that are not important to you. <laughs> and that's hard to think. I don't even care about that. It is stupid thing. Um, but actually, you wouldn't get angry if it didn't matter to you. And that's, that's difficult because here's the way I understand anger when it comes up with all that strength and power and intensity is that you've already lost your boundaries. You're already in a, in a vulnerable place. And anger comes up to give you the strength you need to make it through. But for some people, they just, you know, they'll just lash out. Um, 
which to me, lashing out is a sign that you've got a boundary impairment, that you don't understand the proper rules of engagement and that you, you still aren't okay, even though you may have exploded at someone and ah, um, that you still don't have good boundaries. But when anger comes up, what it does is it helps strengthen you so that you can be vulnerable and say, you know what's important to me right now? Or something along those mm-hmm. lines. You know, what's, you know what's troubling me about this? It's this. Mm-hmm. And you know, I care about our relationship. And, and what I need to say is this. Right? So, so I can show you vulnerability, but I have the, the strength I need to stand up straight while I'm doing it. Um, that's what anger brings me is the strength, what I call strength within and not strength over. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think that's also um, a, a misunderstanding that we have in the modern world about what strength is. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think of strength as control. Yeah, control over others and brutality. Strength. No, because I I do feel when I get really grounded, um, and I mm-hmm. get really clear that I I just feel really rooted, and that my strength comes from that rootedness. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, and and even when when I was going through that bit of a shame storm afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got really clear, like, okay, well, what, what is, what is in my intent? What is it that I want? And I, I want dialogue. I think it's important to have dialogue. Um, yeah. and, um, and so in, in a way that's not inviting shame or blame, but how can we have dialogue to, to talk about, you know, what's appropriate leadership and what's not appropriate leadership mm-hmm. so that we can learn. Cause if we don't have feedback, if we don't say anything, then we're going to, we're, we're also part of the problem because we're letting it continue. Right. Yeah. And so it, it, and when I was able to say it in that manner, I was very, I was very calm. I felt very strong, but that wasn't me coming out and attacking people. And that's yeah. what it sounds like what you're talking about when you come from a place of strength. Yes. Yes. And I'm, I'm thinking of, for instance, Aikido, where you have to learn to ground yourself and mm-hmm. find your own center before you can go leaping and kicking mm-hmm. and stuff. Otherwise, you're just going to fall on your Francis. You know, you're down if you don't know your own strength and your own grounding and your own center, then the actions that you take are going to be kind of chaotic uh, or unstable. And so for me, when anger comes up, I ground myself immediately. And by that, I mean breathing in and down, calming myself intentionally and looking around myself with clear eyes rather than with fierce eyes. And I'm still doing all the actions that anger requires of me. And one of the cool things about emotions is that if you understand which action it requires and you take that action, the emotion will recede naturally because it's not required anymore. Ooh, why? Because um, this is something that I learned after I wrote the book. It would have made my book so much shorter. The neuroscientist of emotion, Antonio Damasio, says that emotions are action-requiring neurological programs. And... That is what I found in my own work, but I didn't have that awesome name for it. So, so basically, a stimulus occurs, your emotion arises to, to, to respond to the stimulus, and if you take the action that the emotion requires, which means you've, you've handled it, you've taken care of it, you've paid attention to it, the emotion will recede naturally because it's no longer needed. So when I was talking about that woman who, who kept crying and crying and crying over days 
and it's, the crying didn't stop. I thought, well, okay, so she is, she's completing the actions for sadness, but it's not working. So what I was looking for then in her emotional sort of, sort of um, environment is what is go- what's going on here that, that this emotion is not receding. Um, and then I was able to say, oh, okay, it's the wrong emotion. So we went to, we went to grief and she was able to understand she was in the wrong emotion for what was actually going on. And because of most of us are not taught how to deal with grief at all, it's not surprising that people get stuck in sadness. <laughs> you know, sadness is close to grief, but it's not grief. So getting very specific with emotions, and I identify 17 emotions to try to make it easy for people, like there's 17 categories of emotion, so that people can say, well, wait a minute, what am I feeling? Uh, is it fear? Fear's job is to help me uh, orient to the present and to identify change, novelty, or possible physical hazards. So if I'm feeling fear, I just stop, look around myself, and see, is there anything troubling here? And if I do, the fear will recede because I'm doing what fear needs me to do. So it's an awesome way to work with emotions, is to look at them as, as neurological programs and responses that require an action. You take the action. If the emotion doesn't recede, it's not that you're broken or that your emotion doesn't work. It's, oh, something else is going on. And then it gives you like this whole internal dialogue and an internal um, uh, world that you can um, explore and become more intelligent and more aware and more awake with the emotions. Um, Because trying to do it without the emotions, that doesn't work. Um, if that had worked, it would have worked by now. We're, what are we on? When did when did Descartes separate um, um, emotions from rationality? I think therefore I am. 1500s. I can't remember when he was working. Right. We had a couple of centuries of that Descartes. <laughs> if it worked, it would have worked by now. Um, this is I feel, therefore I am. I think too. I feel. I think. I experience. I'm in my body. I'm having visions, I'm all of these things, and my emotions are an intrinsic part of my intelligence and my capacity to function. <laughs> Poor Descartes, <laughs> he's all dead. <laughs> so, as you were talking about the emotions, and they're here, you know, once we take care of what it's the message, then it, it diminishes, right? Because isn't one of the fears that people have is, Oh, if I if I allow the sadness to come in, I'm going to remain mm-hmm. sad. I'm going to have this pity party and build this campfire. I'm going to be here forever. But what yeah. you're saying is, no. If you feel that sadness and you answer what it needs, you can actually move out of that space. And if you ever have cried, and you know, try to cry for more than 20 minutes, <laughs> you know, you'll start to laugh, and then you'll go, "Why am I crying?" Right? Because the crying releases all kinds of neurotoxins. Mm-hmm. Uh, through your tears, it reduces stress. It does all kinds of things. If you cry, you will change. You know, significant. You'll create significant change in your body. And once you do cry, you will be able to move forward. Unless, of course, the situation is that it's really about grief or something else, and then it's important to notice that the crying isn't doing anything. Mm-hmm. But um, the idea that you will cry forever—it just doesn't happen. And what's interesting is crying and laughing often come together. So you'll cry and then it will release 
laughter and then you'll cry again and then more laughter and then sometimes anger will come up and you'll say I'm not sad about this I'm I'm actually quite angry <laughs> and then you'll cry again and then you'll stomp and then you'll laugh it's like if you can let the emotions move you'll see that they it is normal for them to move together and uh, one after the other and there's a, just a wonderful flow in the emotional realm that you can't see <laughs> you can't see if 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 you're not willing to go in so Carla, as we wrap up here, what are two takeaways you can give the listeners to practice listening to their emotions? The first one is develop an emotional vocabulary so that you have more words than just angry. So that you have, I'm feeling peevish, I'm feeling impatient, I'm feeling frustrated. So that you can become very precise with your emotions. There's research from UCLA that suggests that simply naming an emotion to yourself will calm down your neurology. It will calm down your body so that you can focus. And I think we've all been taught never to name emotions because then they'll take you over and, you know, Mm -hmm. you'll go down a rabbit hole. But actually naming emotions will help your entire organism begin to learn how to work with them. And I have on my website uh, a free emotional vocabulary list, um, which people can have. Um, The second thing is simply listen without throwing a bunch of, this is a good emotion, this is a bad emotion nonsense on top of this. Just to simply say, this is an emotion. And name it if you can. And it will really help you begin to understand how emotions work in your life, which emotions continually rise up for you, which ones you don't feel very often, and then you can find out why. But simply developing an emotional vocabulary and and identifying your emotions when they come up. These are two, these are two wonderful and simple skills that will make emotional functioning so much easier. I will have links to Carla's website and also to the emotional vocabulary for the listeners on her interview page. Carla, thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you. It was wonderful to talk to you. This is Corinne Modokaitis, and you've been listening to How She Really Does It. My guest today is Carla McLaren, and her books are The Art of Empathy and The Language of Emotions. Thanks for listening to How She Really Does It. I invite you to subscribe to my weekly newsletter at howshereallydoesit.com. I do this show each week for you so you can now see the windows of possibilities in your own life. I believe there are many journeys for us to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. I believe there are possibilities for all of us, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can now see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week, I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, 
leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into this space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really ask yourself that. I would love to connect with you. Please join me at www.howshereallydoesit.com. And thanks for listening today. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wild.